It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, and I'm glad we're back for another story about Billy the Kid. Today we're going to be reading The History of Billy the Kid, Part 1, by Charles Seringo. This is subtitled, The True Life of the Most Daring Young Outlaw of the Age. He was the leading spirit in the bloody Lincoln County, New Mexico War when a bullet from Sheriff Pat Garrett's pistol pierced his breast. He was only 21 years of age and had killed 21 men, not counting Indians. His six years of daring outlawry have never been equaled in the annals of criminal history. We have done an episode of Charles Seringo's work previously, and that was excerpts from a Texas cowboy, read by host John Hagedorn. Go back and check out that episode. Turns out, Charlie Seringo lived one heck of a life. Starting out on Padre Island, he became a cowboy and ultimately became a cowboy detective and worked for the Panhandle Cattlemen's Association to end the rustling of Billy the Kid and his Lincoln County gang. So this is Charlie Seringo's first-hand story of Billy the Kid. In the slum district of the great city of New York, on the 23rd day of November, 1859, a blue-eyed baby boy was born to William H. Bonney and his good-looking, auburn-haired young wife, Kathleen. Being their first child, he was naturally the joy of their hearts. Later, another baby boy followed. In 1862, William H. Bonney shook the dust of New York City from his shoes and emigrated to Coffeyville, Kansas on the northern border of the Indian Territory with his little family. Soon after settling down in Coffeyville, Mr. Bonney died. Then, the young widow moved to the territory of Colorado, where she married a Mr. Antrim. Shortly after this marriage, the little family of four moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, at the end of the old Santa Fe Trail. Here, they opened a restaurant, and one of their first boarders was Ash Upson, then doing work on the Daily New Mexican. Little blue-eyed Billy Bonney was then about five years of age and became greatly attached to the good-natured, jovial Ash Upson, who spent much of his leisure time playing with the bright boy. Three years later, when the hero of our story was about eight years old 
Ash Upson, and the Antrim family pulled up stakes and moved to the booming silver mining camp of Silver City in the southwestern part of the territory of New Mexico. Here, Mr. and Mrs. Antrim established a new restaurant and had Ash Upson as their star boarder. Naturally, their boarders were made up of all classes, both men and women, some being gamblers and toughs of the lowest order. Amidst these surroundings, Billy Bonney grew up. He went to school and was a bright scholar. When not in school, Billy was associating with tough men and boys and learning the art of gambling and shooting. This didn't suit Mr. Antrim, who became a cruel stepfather, according to Billy Bonney's way of thinking. Jesse Evans, a little older than Billy, was a young tough who was a hero in Billy's estimation. They became fast friends and bosom companions. In the years to come, they were to fight bloody battles side by side as friends and again as bitter enemies. As a boy, Mr. Upson says Billy had a sunny disposition, but when aroused, he had an uncontrollable temper. At the tender age of 12, when young Bonnie made a trip to Fort Union, New Mexico, and there gambled with the Negro soldiers, one soldier cheated Billy, who shot him dead. This story I got from the lips of Billy the Kid himself in 1878. Making his way back to Silver City, he kept the secret from his fond mother, who was the idol of his heart. One day, Billy's mother, who was passing a crowd of toughs on the street, one of them made an insulting remark about her. Billy, who was in the crowd, heard it. He struck the fella in the face with his fist. The tough made a rush at Billy, and as he passed Ed Moulton, Ed planted a blow on the back of his ear and laid him sprawling on the ground. This act cemented a friendship between Ed Moulton and the future young outlaw. About three weeks later, Ed Moulton got into a fight with two toughs in Joe Dyer's saloon. He was getting the best of the fight. The young blacksmith who had insulted Mrs. Antrim and who had been knocked down by Ed Moulton saw a chance for revenge. He rushed at Moulton with an uplifted chair. Billy Bonney was standing nearby, ready to assist his benefactor at a moment's notice. The time had now arrived. He sprang at the blacksmith and stabbed him with a knife three times. The blacksmith fell over dead. Billy ran out of the saloon, his right hand dripping with blood. Realizing the result of his crime, he was soon lost in the pitchy darkness of the night headed towards the southwest, afoot. For three days and nights, Billy wandered through the cactus-covered hills without seeing a human being. Luck finally brought him to a sheep camp, where the Mexican herder gave him some food. From the sheep camp, he went to McKnight's ranch and stole a horse, riding away without a saddle. Three weeks later, a boy and a grown-up rode into Camp Bowie, a government post. Both were on a skinny, sore-back pony. This newfound companion had a name and history of his own, which he was nursing in secret. He gave his name to Billy as Alias. And that was the name he was known by around Camp Bowie. Finally, Billy, having disposed of his sore-back pony, started out for the Apache Indian Reservation with Alias afoot. They were armed with an old army rifle and a six-shooter which they had borrowed from soldiers. About ten miles southwest of Camp Bowie, 
these two young desperados came on to three Indians who had twelve ponies, a lot of pelts, and several saddles, besides good firearms and blankets. In telling of the affair afterward, Billy said, It was a groundhog case. Here were twelve good ponies, a supply of blankets, and five heavy loads of pelts. Here were three bloodthirsty Apaches reveling in luxury and refusing to help two free-born white American citizens, foot-sore and hungry. The plunder had to change hands. As one live Indian could place a hundred United States soldiers on our trail, the decision was made. In about three minutes' time, there were three dead Indians stretched out on the ground, and with their ponies and plunder, we skipped. There was no fight. It was the softest thing I ever struck. About 100 miles from this bloody massacre, the surplus ponies and plunder were sold and traded off to a band of Texas emigrants. Finally, the two young brigands settled down in Tucson, where Billy's skill as a Monte dealer and card player kept them in luxuriant style and gave them prestige among the sporting fraternity. Becoming tired of town life, the two desperados hit the trail for San Simon, where they beat a band of Indians out of a lot of money in a fake horse race. The next we hear of Billy Bonnie is in the state of Sonora, Old Mexico, where he went alone, according to his own statement. In Sonora, he joined issues with a Mexican gambler named Melchiades Segura. One night, the two murdered a Monte dealer, Don Jose Martinez, and secured his bankroll. Now the two desperados shook the dust of Sonora from their feet and landed in the city of Chihuahua, several hundred miles eastward across the Sierra Madres Mountains. In the city of Chihuahua, the two desperados led a hurrah life among the sporting elements. Finally, their money was gone and their luck at cards went against them. Then, Billy and Segura held up and robbed several money dealers, when on the way home after their games had closed for the night. One of these money dealers had offended Billy, which caused his death. One morning before the break of day, this money dealer was on his way home. A peon was carrying his fat bankroll in a buckskin bag, finely decorated with gold and silver threads. When nearing his residence on the outskirts of the city, Segura and young Bonnie made a charge from behind a vacant adobe building. The one-sided battle was soon over. A popular Mexican gambler lay stretched dead on the ground. The peon willingly gave up the sack of gold and silver. Now towards the Texas border, in a northeasterly direction, a distance of 300 miles, as fast as their mounts could carry them. When their horses began to grow tired, other mounts were secured. Their bills were paid en route, with gold doubloons taken from the buckskin sack. On reaching the Rio Grande River, which separates Texas from the Republic of Mexico, the young outlaws separated for the time being. Billy Bonney finally met up with his Silver City chum, Jesse Evans, and they became partners in crime in the bordering state of Texas and the territories of New Mexico and Arizona. Many robberies and some murders were committed by these smooth-faced boys, and they had many narrow escapes from death or capture. Fresh horses were always at their command, as they were experts with the lasso, and the scattering ranchmen all had bands of ponies on the range. On one occasion, the boys ate dinner with a party of Texas emigrants, and were well treated. Leaving the emigrant camp, a band of renegade Apaches were seen skulking in the hills. The boys concealed themselves to await the results, 
as they felt sure a raid was to be made on the emigrants who were headed for the territory of Arizona. There were only three men in the party and several women and children. Just at dusk, the boys, who were stealing along their trail in the low, flint-covered hills, heard shooting. Realizing that the battle was on, Billy and Jesse put spurs to their mounts and reached the camp just in time. By this time, it was dark. The three men had succeeded in standing off the Indians for a while, but finally a rush was made on the camp by the Apache with their blood-curdling war whoops. At that moment, the two young heroes charged among the Indians and sprang off their horses with Winchester rifles in hand. For a few moments, the battle raged. One bullet shattered the stock of Billy's rifle, crippling his left hand slightly. Then he dropped the rifle and used his pistol. When the battle was over, eight dead Apaches lay on the ground. The emigrants shielded themselves by getting behind their wagons. Two of the men were slightly wounded, and the other dangerously shot through the stomach. One little girl had a fractured skull from a blow on the head with a rifle. The mother of the child fainted on seeing her daughter fall. In telling of this battle, Billy Bonney said the war whoops shattered by himself and Jesse as they charged into the band of Indians helped to win the battle. He said a bullet knocked the heel off of one of his boots and that Jesse's hat was shot off his head. He felt sure that the man shot through the stomach died, though he never heard of the party after separating. Soon after the Indian battle, Billy Bonney and Jesse Evans landed in the Mexican village of Mesilla, New Mexico. There met up with some of Billy's chums. Their names were Jim McDaniels, Bill Morton, and Frank Baker. During their stay in Mesilla, Jim McDaniels christened Billy Bonney, Billy the Kid, and that name stuck to him to the time of his death. Finally, these three tough cowboys started for the Pecos River with Jesse Evans. Billy the Kid promised to join them later as he had received word that his old Mexico chum, Segura, was in jail in San Elizario, Texas, below El Paso. This word had been brought by a Mexican boy sent by Segura. The kid told the boy to wait in Mesilla till he and Segura got there. It was the fall of 1876. Mounted on his favorite gray horse, Billy the Kid started out at 6 o'clock in the evening for the 81-mile ride to San Elizario. A swift ride brought him into El Paso, then called Franklin, a distance of 56 miles, before midnight. Here he dismounted in front of Peter Den's saloon to let the noble Gray rest. While waiting, he had a few drinks of whiskey and fed Gray some crackers, there being no horse feed at the saloon. Now for the 25-mile dash down the Rio Grande River over a level road to San Elizario. It was made in quick time, Daylight had not yet begun to break. Dismounting in front of the jail, the kid knocked at the front door. The Mexican jailer asked, Quien es? The kid replied in good Spanish, Open up, we have two American prisoners here. The heavy door was open, and the jailer found a cocked pistol pointed at him. Now, the frightened guard gave up the pistol and the keys to the cell in which Segura was shackled and handcuffed. In the rear of the jail building, there was another guard asleep. He was relieved of his firearms and dagger. When Segura was free of the irons, the two guards were gagged so they couldn't give an alarm and chained to a post. 
The two outlaws started out in the darkest part of the night, just before day. Segura on gray and the kid trotting by his side afoot. An hour later, the two desperados were at a Confederate's ranch across the Rio Grande River in Old Mexico. After filling up with a hot breakfast, the kid was soon asleep, while Segura kept watch for officers. The kid's noble gray was fed and, with a Mustang, kept hidden out in the brush. Now the ranchman, their Confederate, rode into San Elizario to post himself on the jailbreak. Hurrying back to the ranch, he advised his two guests to hit the high places as there was great excitement in San Elizario. Reaching Mesilla, New Mexico, the two young outlaws found the boy who had carried the message to Billy the Kid from Segura and rewarded him with a handful of Mexican gold. After a few daring raids in Old Mexico with Segura, the Kid fell in with a wild young man by the name of Tom O'Keefe. Together, they started for the Pecos River country to meet Jesse Evans and his companions. Instead of taking the wagon road, the two venturesome boys cut across the Mescalero Apache Indian Reservation, which took in most of the high Guadalupe range of mountains, which separates the Pecos and Rio Grande rivers. First, they rode into El Paso, Texas, and loaded a pack mule with provisions. A few days out of El Paso, the boys ran out of water and were puzzled as to which way to ride. Finally, a fresh Indian trail was found, evidently leading to water. It was followed to the mouth of a deep canyon. For fear of running into a trap, the kid decided to take the canteen and go afoot, leaving his mount and pack mule with O'Keefe, who was instructed to come to his rescue should he hear yelling and shooting. A mile of cautious traveling brought the kid to a cool spring of water. The ground was tramped hard with fresh pony and Indian tracks. After filling the canteen and drinking all the water he could hold, the kid started down the canyon to rejoin his companion. He hadn't gone far when Indians, afoot, began pouring out of the cliff to the right, which cut off his retreat down the canyon. There was nothing to do but return towards the spring as fast as his legs could carry him. The twenty half-naked braves were gaining on him and shouting blood-curdling war whoops. Like a pursued mountain lion, the kid sprang into the jungles of a steep cliff. Foot by foot, his way was made to a place of concealment. The Indian, seeing him leave the trail, scrambled up into the brushy cliff. Now the kid's trusty pistol began to talk, and several young braves, who were leading the chase, passed to the happy hunting ground. The kid said the body of one buck went down the cliff and caught on the overhanging limb of a dead tree and there hung suspended in plain view. Many shots were fired at the kid when he sprang from one hiding place to another. One bullet struck a rock near his head and the splinters gave him a slight wound on his face and neck. Reaching the extreme top of a high peak, the young outlaw felt safe as he could see no Indians on his trail. Being exhausted, he soon fell asleep. On hearing the yelling and shooting, Tom O'Keefe stampeded, leaving the kid's mountain pack mule where they stood. Reaching a high bluff, which was impossible for a horse to climb, O'Keefe quit his mount and took it afoot. From cliff to cliff, he made his way towards the top of a peak. Finally, his keen eyesight caught the figure of a man, far away across a deep canyon, trying to reach the top of another peak. He surmised that the bold climber must be the kid. 
At last, O'Keefe's strength gave out, and he too lay down to sleep. His hands and limbs were bleeding from the scratches received from sharp rocks, and he was craving water. Being refreshed from a long night's sleep, the kid headed for the big red sun which was just creeping up out of the great Llano Estacado, over a hundred miles to the east across the Pecos River. Finally, water was struck, and he was happy. Then he filled up on wild berries which were plentiful along the borders of the small sparkling stream of water. Three days later, the young hero outlaw reached a cow camp on the Rio Pecos. He made himself known to the cowboys, who gave him a good horse to ride and conducted him to the Murphy Dolan Cow Camp, where his chum, Jesse Evans, was employed. In this camp, the kid also met his former friends, McDaniels, Baker, and Morton. Here, the kid was told of the smoldering cattle war between the Murphy-Dolan faction on one side and the cattle king John Chisholm on the other. Many small cattle owners were arrayed with the firm of Murphy and Dolan, who owned a large store in Lincoln and were the owners of many cattle. On Chisholm's side were Alexander McSween, a prominent lawyer from Lincoln, the county seat, and a wealthy Englishman by the name of John Tunstall, who had only been in America one year. McSween and Tunstall had formed a partnership in the cattle business and had established a general trading store in Lincoln. It was now the early spring of 1877. Jesse Evans tried to persuade Billy the Kid to join the Murphy-Dolan faction, but he argued that he first had to find Tom O'Keefe, dead or alive, as it was against his principles to desert a chum in time of danger. For nearly a year, a storm had been brewing between John Chisholm and the smaller ranchman. Chisholm claimed all the range in the Pecos Valley, from Fort Sumner to the Texas line, a distance of over 200 miles. Naturally, there was much mavericking, that is, stealing of unbranded young animals from the Chisholm cattle which ranged about 25 miles on either side of the Pecos River. Chisholm owned 40 to 60,000 cattle on his Jingle Bob range. His cattle were marked with a long Jingle Bob hanging down from their dewlap. In branding the calves, the Chisholm cowboys would slash the dewlap above the breast, leaving a chunk of hide and flesh hanging downward. When the wound healed, the animal was well marked with the dangling Jingle Bob. Thus did the Chisholm outfit get the name Jingle Bobs. Well-mounted and armed, Billy the Kid started out in search of Tom O'Keefe. He was found at Las Cruces, three miles from La Mesilla, the county seat of Doña Ana County, New Mexico. It was a happy meeting between the two smooth-faced boys. Each had to relate his experience during and after the Indian Trouble. O'Keefe, having left and subsequently lost his horse, struck out afoot towards the west, living on berries and such game as he could kill, finally landing in Las Cruces, where he swore off being a companion of a young, daring outlaw. Billy the Kid tried to persuade O'Keefe to accompany him back to the Pecos Valley to take part in the approaching cattle war. But Tom said he had had enough of playing Bad Man from Bitter Creek. Now the kid went to a ranch where he had left his noble gray and with him started back towards the Pecos River. 
Arriving at the Murphy Dolan Cow Camp on the Pecos River, Billy the Kid was greeted by his friends McDaniels, Morton, and Baker, who persuaded him to join the Murphy and Dolan outfit and become one of their fighting cowboys. This he agreed to do, and was put on the payroll at good wages. The Kid was not satisfied to be at war with the young Englishman, John S. Tunstall, whom he had met on several occasions. On one of his trips to the Mexican town of Lincoln to blow in his accumulated wages, the kid met Tunstall and expressed regret at fighting against him. The matter was talked over, and Billy the Kid agreed to switch over from the Murphy Dolan faction. Tunstall at once put him under wages and told him to make his headquarters at the cow camp on the Rio Feliz, which flowed into the Pecos from the west. Now the kid rode back to the camp and told the dozen cowboys there of his new deal. They tried to persuade him of his mistake, but his mind was made up and couldn't be changed. In the argument, Baker abused the kid for going back on his friends. This came very near starting a little war in that camp. The kid made Baker back down when he offered to shoot it out with him on the square. Before riding away on his faithful gray, the kid expressed regrets at having to fight against his chum Jesse Evans in the future. At the Rio Feliz cow camp, the kid made friends with all the cowboys there and with Tunstall and McSween when he rode into Lincoln to have a good time at the Mexican Fandangos. A few killings took place on the Pecos River during the fall, but Billy the Kid was not in these fights. In the early part of December 1877, the kid received a letter from his Mexican chum Segura asking that he meet him at their friend's ranch across the Rio Grande River in Old Mexico on a matter of great importance. Mounted on the gray, the kid started. Meeting Segura, he found that all he wanted was to share a bag of Mexican gold with him. Now, Billy the Kid, with its pockets bulging with Mexican gold, returned to the Tunstall-McSween cow camp on the Rio Feliz in Lincoln County, New Mexico. In the month of February 1878, Billy Morton, who held a commission as deputy sheriff, raised a posse of fighting cowboys and went to one of Tunstall's cow camps on the upper Ruidoso River to attach some horses which were claimed by the Murphy Dolan outfit. Tunstall was at the camp with some of his employees. It was claimed by Morton that Tunstall fired the first shot, but that story was not believed by the opposition. In the fight, Tunstall and his mount were killed. While lying on his face gasping for breath, Tom Hill, who was later killed while robbing a sheep camp, placed a rifle to the back of his head and blew out his brains. This murder took place in the 18th day of February, 1878. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to our story. Before sunset, 
a runner carried the news to Billy the Kid on the Rio Felice. His anger was at the boiling point on hearing of this foul murder. He at once saddled his horse and started to Lincoln to consult with Lawyer McSween. Now the Lincoln County War was on with the vengeance and hatred, and the kid was to play a leading role in it. He swore that he would kill every man who took part in the murder of his friend, Tunstall. At that time, Lincoln County, New Mexico was about the size of Pennsylvania, about 200 miles square, and only a few thousand inhabitants, mostly Mexicans, scattered over its surface. On reaching the town of Lincoln, the kid was informed by McSween that E.M. Brewer had been sworn in as a special constable and was making up a posse for the arrest of the murderers of Tunstall. Billy the Kid joined the Brewer posse as they started for the Pecos River. On March 6th, the Brewer posse ran onto five mounted men at the lower crossing of the Rio Penasco, six miles from the Pecos River. These five fled and were pursued by Brewer and his crowd. Two of the fleeing cowboys separated from their companions. The kid recognized them as Morton and Baker, his former friends. He dashed after them, and the rest of the posse followed his lead. Shots were being fired back and forth. At last, Morton's and Baker's mounts fell over dead. The two men then crawled into a sinkhole to shield their bodies from the bullets. A parley was held, and the two men surrendered, after Brewer had promised them protection. The kid protested against giving this pledge. He remarked, My time will come. Now the posse started for the Chisholm Home Ranch on the South Spring River with the two handcuffed prisoners. On the morning of March 9th, the Brewer posse started with the prisoners for Lincoln, but pretended to be headed for Fort Sumner. After traveling five miles, they came to the little village of Roswell, where they stopped to allow Morton time to write a letter to his cousin in Virginia. Ash Upson was the postmaster in Roswell, and Morton asked him to notify his cousin in Virginia if the posse failed to keep their pledge of protection. McCloskey, one of the posse who was standing near, remarked, If harm comes to you two, they will have to kill me first. The party started out at about 10 a.m. from Roswell. About 4 p.m., Martin Chavez of Picacho arrived in Roswell and reported to Ash Upson that the posse and their prisoners had quit the main road to Lincoln and had turned off in the direction of Agua Negra, an unfrequented watering place. This move satisfied the postmaster that the doom of Morton and Baker was sealed. On March 11, Frank McNabb, one of the Brewer posse, rode up to the post office and dismounted. Mr. Upson expressed surprise and told him that he supposed he was in Lincoln by now. Now McNabb confessed that Morton, Baker, and McCloskey were dead. Later, Ash Upson got the particulars from Billy the Kid of the killing. The Kid and Charlie Bowdry were riding in the lead as they neared Agua Negra Spring. McCloskey and Middleton rode by the side of the two prisoners. The balance of the posse followed behind. Finally, Brown and McNabb spurred up their horses and rode up to McCloskey and Middleton. McNabb shoved a cocked pistol at McCloskey's head, saying, You are the SOB who's got to die before harm could come to these fellows, are you? Now the trigger was pulled, and McCloskey fell from his horse, dead, shot through the head. 
Billy the Kid heard the shot and wheeled his horse around in time to see the two prisoners dashing away on their mounts. The Kid fired twice, and Morton and Baker fell from their horses, dead. No doubt it was a put-up job to allow the Kid to kill the murderers of his friend Tunstall with his own hands. The posse rode on to Lincoln, all but McNabb, who returned to Roswell. The bodies of McCloskey, Morton, and Baker were left where they fell. Ultimately, they were buried by some sheep herders. Thus ends the first chapter of the bloody Lincoln County War. On returning to Lincoln, Billy the Kid had many consultations with lawyer McSween about the murder of Tunstall. It was agreed to never let up until all the murderers were in their graves. The kid heard that one of Tunstall's murderers was seen around Blazer Sawmill near the Mescalero Indian Reservation, about 40 miles from Lincoln. He at once notified Officer Dick Brewer, who made up a posse to search for Buckshot Roberts, an ex-soldier, a fine rider, and a dead shot. As the posse rode up to Blazer's Mill from the east, Roberts came galloping up from the west. The kid put spurs to his horse and made a dash at him. Both had their Winchesters pulled from the scabbards. Both men fired at the same time. Roberts' bullet went whizzing past the kid's ear, while the one from Billy the Kid's rifle found lodgment in Roberts' body. It was a death wound, but gave Roberts time to prove his bravery and fine marksmanship. Roberts fell from his mount and found concealment in an outhouse. It's from there that he fought his last battle. The posse men dismounted and found concealment behind many large saw logs scattered over the ground. For a short time, the battle raged while the live blood was fast flowing from Roberts' wound. One of his bullets struck Charlie Beaudry, giving him a serious wound. Another bullet cut off a finger from George Coe's hand and still another went crashing through Dick Brewer's head as he peeped over a log to get a shot at Roberts. Brewer fell over dead. This was Roberts' last shot, as he soon expired from the wound the kid had given him. A graveyard was now started on a round hill near Blazer's Sawmill. After the battle at Blazer's Mill, the Coe brothers joined issues with Billy the Kid and fought other battles against the Murphy-Dolan faction. In one battle, Frank Coe was arrested and taken to the Lincoln Jail. Through the aid of his friends, he made his escape. Now that their lawful leader, Dick Brewer, was in his grave, the posse returned to Lincoln. Here, they formed themselves into a band without lawful authority to avenge the murder of Tunstall, until not one was left alive. By common consent, Billy the Kid was appointed their leader. In Lincoln lived one of Billy the Kid's enemies, Billy Matthews. While he had taken no part in the killing of Tunstall, he had openly expressed himself in favor of Dolan and Murphy and against the McSween faction. On March 28th, Billy Matthews, unarmed, met the Kid in the street quite by accident. Matthews started into a doorway just as the Kid cut down on him with a rifle. The bullet shattered the doorframe above his head. Major William Brady, a brave and honest man, was the sheriff of Lincoln County. He was partial to the Murphy-Dolan faction, and this offended the opposition. He held warrants for Billy the Kid and his associates for the killing of Morton, Baker, and Roberts. 
On the first day of April, 1878, Sheriff Brady left the Murphy Dolan store, accompanied by George Hindman and Billy Matthews, to go to the courthouse and announce that no term of court would be held at the regular April term. The sheriff and his two companions carried rifles in their hands. As in those days, every male citizen who had grown to manhood went well-armed. The Tunstall and McSween store stood about midway between the Murphy Dolan store and the courthouse. In the rear of the Tunstall McSween store, there stood an adobe corral, the east of which projected beyond the store building and commanded a view of the street over which the sheriff had to pass. On the top of this corral wall, Billy and his warriors had cut grooves in which to rest their rifles. As the sheriff and party came in sight, a volley was fired at them from the adobe fence. Brady and Hinman fell mortally wounded, and Matthews found shelter behind a house on the south side of the street. Ike Stockton, who afterwards became a killer of men and a bold desperado, who was later killed in Durango, Colorado, at that time kept a saloon in Lincoln and was a friend of the kids. He ran out of his saloon to the wounded officers. Hinman called for water. Stockton ran to the Benita River nearby and brought him a drink in his own hat. At this time, Billy the Kid leaped over the adobe wall and ran to the fallen officers. As he raised Sheriff Brady's rifle from the ground, Billy Matthews fired at him from his hiding place. The ball shattered the stock of the sheriff's rifle and plowed a furrow through the kid's side, but it proved not to be a dangerous wound. Now the kid broke for shelter at the McSween home. Some say that he fired a parting shot into Sheriff Brady's head. Others dispute it. At any rate, both Brady and Hinman lay dead on the main street of Lincoln. This cold-blooded murder angered many citizens of Lincoln against the kid and his crowd. Now, they became outlaws in every sense of the word. From now on, the kid and his warriors made their headquarters at McSween's residence, when not scouting the country and searching for enemies. Often, this little band of warriors would ride through the streets of Lincoln to defy their enemies and be royally treated by their friends. Finally, George Pepin was appointed sheriff of the county and he appointed a dozen or more deputies to help uphold the law. Still, bloodshed and anarchy reigned throughout the county, and the kid and his crowd were not idle. San Patricio, a Mexican plaza on the Rudoso River, about eight miles below Lincoln, was a favorite hangout for the kid and his warriors, as most of the natives there were sympathizers. One morning before breakfast in San Patricio, Jose Miguel Cedillo brought the kid news that Jesse Evans and a crowd of Seven River Warriors were prowling around in the hills near the old Brewer Ranch, where a band of Chisholm-McSween horses were being kept. Thinking that their intentions were to steal these horses, the kid and party started without eating breakfast. In the party, besides the kid, were Charlie Beaudry, Henry Brown, J.G. Skurlock, John Middleton, and a young Texan by the name of Tom O'Folliard, who had lately joined the gang. On reaching the hills, the party split, the kid taking Henry Brown with him. Soon, the kid heard the shooting in the direction taken by the balance of his party. Putting spurs to his mount, he dashed up to Jesse Evans and four of his warriors, who had captured Charlie Beaudry and was joking about with him about his leader, the kid. Jesse said, 
We're hungry, and we thought we'd roast the kid for breakfast. We want to hear him bleat. At that moment, a horseman dashed up among them from an arroyo. With a smile, Charlie Beaudry said, pointing at the kid, Well, there comes your breakfast, Jesse. Withdrawn pistol, Old Gray was checked up in front of his former chum in crime, Jesse Evans. With a smile, Jesse remarked, Well, Billy, this is a hell of a way to introduce yourself at a private picnic party. The kid replied, How are you, Jesse? It's been a long time since we met. Jesse, I understand you're after the men who killed that Englishman. I want you to know that I nor none of my men were there. I know you wasn't, Jesse. If you had been, the ball would have been open before now. Soon, the kid was joined by the rest of his party, and both bands separated in peace. As time went on, Sheriff Pippin appointed new deputies on whom he could depend. Among these was Marion Turner. For several years, Turner had been employed by Cattle King John Chisholm, and up to May 1878 had helped to fight his battles. But for some reason, he had seceded and become Chisholm's bitter enemy. Marion Turner was put in charge of the sheriff's forces in the Pecos Valley, and soon had about 40 daring cowboys and cattlemen under his command. Roswell was their headquarters. Early in July, Billy the Kid and 14 of his followers rode up to the Chisholm headquarters ranch, five miles from Roswell, to make that their rendezvous. Turner and his forces tried to oust the Kid and gang from their stronghold, but found it impossible, owing to the house being built like a fort to stand off Indians. One morning, Turner received word that the kid and his party had left for Fort Sumner on the upper Pecos River. The trail was followed about 20 miles up the river, where it switched off towards Lincoln, a distance of about 80 or 90 miles. The trail was followed to Lincoln, where it was found that Billy the Kid and gang had taken possession of McSween's fine 11-room residence and were prepared to stand off an army. On arriving in Lincoln with his posse, Turner was joined by Sheriff Pepin and his deputies, and they made the Big House, as the Murphy Dolan store was called, their headquarters. For three days, shots were fired back and forth from the buildings, which were far apart. On the morning of July 19, 1878, Marion Turner concluded to take some of his men to the McSween residence and demand the surrender of the kid and his warriors. With Turner were his business partner, John A. Jones, and eight other fearless men. At that moment, the kid and party were in a rear room holding consultation. Otherwise, some of the advancing party might have been killed. On reaching the thick adobe wall of the building, through which portholes had been cut, Turner and his men found protection against the wall between these openings. When the kid and party returned to the portholes, they were hailed by Turner, who demanded their surrender as he had warrants for their arrest. The kid replied, We too hold warrants for you and your gang, which we will serve on you hot from the muzzles of our guns. About this time, Lieutenant Colonel Dudley of the 9th Cavalry arrived from Fort Stanton with a company of infantry and some artillery. Planting his cannons midway between the belligerent parties, Colonel Dudley proclaimed that he would turn his guns loose on the first of the two who fired over the heads of his command. Despite this warning, shots were fired back and forth, 
but no harm was done. Now Martin Chavez rode up with 35 Mexicans whom he had deputized to protect McSween and the kids' party. Colonel Dudley asked him under what authority he was acting. He replied that he held a certificate as deputy sheriff under Brady. Colonel Dudley told him that as Sheriff Brady was dead and a new sheriff had been appointed, his commission was not in effect. Still, Chavez proclaimed that he would protect the kid and McSween. Now Colonel Dudley ordered Chavez off the field of battle, where he would have his men fire on them. When the guns were pointed in their direction, the Chavez crowd retreated to the Ellis Hotel. Here, he ordered his followers to take up positions and fire on the soldiers if they opened up on the kid and party with their cannon. Toward night, the Turner men, who were up against the McSween residence between the portholes, managed to set fire to the front door and windows. A strong wind carried the blaze to the woodwork of the other rooms. Mrs. McSween and her three lady friends had left the building before the fight started. She had made one trip back to see her husband. The firing ceased while she was in the house. In the front parlor, Mrs. McSween had a fine piano. To prevent it from burning, the kid moved it from one room to another until it was finally in the kitchen. The crowd made merry around the piano, singing and pawing the ivory. After dark, when the fiery flames began to lick their way into the kitchen, where the smoke-begrimed band were congregated, a question of surrender was discussed, but the kid put his veto on the move. He stood near the outer door of the kitchen with his rifle and swore that he would kill the first man who cried surrender. He had planned to wait until the last minute, then all rush out the door together and make a run for the Benita River, a distance of about 50 yards. Finally, the heat became so great, the kitchen door was thrown open. At this moment, one Mexican became frightened and called out at the top of his voice not to shoot, that they would surrender. The kid struck the fellow over the head with his rifle and knocked him senseless. When the Mexican called out that they would surrender, Bob Beckwith, a cattleman of the Seven Rivers, and John Jones stepped around the corner of the building in full view of the kitchen door. A shot was fired at Beckwith and wounded him in the hand. Then Beckwith opened up and shot lawyer McSween though this was not a death shot. Another shot from Beckwith's gun killed Vicente Romero. Now the kid planted a bullet in Beckwith's head, and he fell over dead. Leaping over Beckwith's body, the band made a run for the river. The kid was in the lead, yelling, Come on, boys! Tom O'Folliard was in the rear. He made his escape amidst flying bullets, without a scratch, although he stopped to pick up his friend Harvey Morris. Finding him dead, he dropped the body. McSween fell dead in the backyard with nine bullets in his body, which was badly scorched by the fire before he left the building. It was 10 p.m. when the fight had ended. Seven men had been killed and many wounded. Only two of Turner's posse were killed, while the kid had lost five, McSween, Morris, and three Mexicans. After their escape from Lincoln, Billy the Kid got his little band together and made a business of stealing stock and gambling. Their headquarters remained in the hills near Fort Stanton, only a few miles above Lincoln. The soldiers at the fort paid no attention to them. Now Governor Lew Wallace, the famous author of Ben-Hur, 
issued a proclamation granting a pardon to the kid and his followers if they would quit their lawlessness. But the kid laughed it off as a joke. On August 5th, Billy the Kid and gang rode up in plain view of the Mescalero Indian Agency and began rounding up a band of horses. During the fall, the government had given a contract to a large gang of Mexicans to put up several hundred tons of hay at $25 a ton. As they drew their pay, the kid and gang were on hand to deal Monty and win all their money. When the contract was finished, there was no more business for the kid's Monty gang. So, with his own hand, as told to the author by himself, he set fire to the haystacks one windy night. Now the government gave another contract for several hundred tons of hay at $50 a ton, as the work had to be rushed before the first frost killed the grass. When payday came around, the kid's Monty game was raking in money again. The new stacks were allowed to stand, as it was too late in the season to cut grass for more hay. During the fall, the kid and some of his gang made trips to Fort Sumner. Beaudry and Skurlock always remained near their wives in Lincoln. But finally, those two outlaws moved their families to Sumner, where a rendezvous was established. Here, one of their gang, who always kept in the dark and worked on the sly, lived with his Mexican wife, a sister to the wife of Pat Garrett. His name was Barney Mason. And with that, we'll conclude part one of the history of Billy the Kid by Charles Seringo. I would be remiss if I didn't refer you back to the earlier 1001 Stories for the Old West episode where host John Hagedorn read the story of the Battle of Blazer's Mill. And that particular battle seemed to be really well portrayed in that 1980s movie, Young Guns. Well, I'm excited to see what happens next week and to see how this thing ends. Of course, we know he gets killed by Pat Garrett, but, but there's a lot of miles between Lincoln and Fort Sumner that need to be covered before we get to that. So join us next week and we'll conclude our three-part series on the Lincoln County Wars and the history of Billy the Kid. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.